Well, happy anniversary, Church of the Savior. It's been 19 years of journeying together, loving God, loving others, loving life. I love that mission, and I love how you all stay on it and exhibit it and live it out. One of the great things that Karen and I have the privilege of is getting kind of a uh, front row seat to watch all of you go to work. So often when I check in on somebody who's going through a tough time, I find out others have already reached them <laughs> and brought them a card, a text, a phone call, a note, a card, uh, I mean a coffee cake, something, and been there for them in, in a special way. I love how you do that. I love how you love God with sincere hearts. Uh, when an opportunity came to launch a, a fund to help plant, church planters of color within C4SO who often don't have the same financial resource networks, uh, you all just didn't even have to think about it and gave very generously to that. And I just see so many wonderful things. Well, sometimes on our church anniversary, I come with a state of the union and talk about how things are, but uh, tonight I want to come with a word of encouragement. Word of encouragement. I just, I want to refresh you. I want to refresh us all. I want to bring some wind of the Spirit into our sails to, to move us forward. And to do that, I, I need to ask a question. What is the most important thing about a church? Think about that. What's the most important? One way to get at that would be to ask, what is it that sets a church apart from other organizations? For example, we provide pastoral counseling, churches do, and it's free. Um, but most pastors are not as highly trained or effective as professional therapists. I know I'm not. Uh, we do social work in a way but not as specialized or intensive as, say, the folks at Outreach or World Relief. Uh, we offer youth programs, but so does Wheaton Park District. <laughs> Every week we have music and speaking, but generally not considered as entertaining as most TV shows. I don't hear people telling me they binge-watch our services. <laughs> I just can't stop. So... <laughs> So what sets apart this group of God's people or any other from what, what makes it stand out? You know, in high school, I could not have begun to tell you. I, uh, my freshman year, I got invited to a group called Campus Life, and I went because they were holding this event, the world's largest banana split. And I thought that would be cool, and I'd be glad to help, you know, make that and eat that. Um, <laughs> Well, it was kind of cool. They had this like foil-lined uh, trench. I can't remember whether it was like PVC pipe or something, but it, it ran, you know, several hundred feet, which was, was neat. But it was nowhere near the world record. The world record is, in case you're wondering, five miles. <laughs> and, uh, but here's what I couldn't figure out. The kids were mostly from my high school. But when I walked in, I could, I could not figure out, like, what could possibly be drawing this group of kids together. There was like one popular, or maybe two. There were a couple jocks, there were a bunch of bandies, a um, couple theater kids, one or two 
tech crew guys, um, a few uh, druggy kids who were trying to do something different. And I was just like, I, I mean, there were a few loners there. It was such a mishmash of kids. I was like, why does this group even exist? And near the end of the meeting, the leader said something about the Bible, which I had never read. Um, but if I had, by the time I got to the second book in, called Exodus, I would have found the answer. When Exodus starts, God's people are slaves. They do the dirty work that the Egyptians do not want to do. Weeding, plowing, making bricks, building things, hauling things. And their Egyptian slave masters then take the food they grow, or most of it, and beat them if they don't work hard enough. One of the most terrifying things about slavery is that it, it gets inside your head. It changes how you feel about yourself. Um, it, it's like the battered wife who comes to really believe, I'm stupid. I could never make it out there on my own. It's really my fault. If I worked harder, he wouldn't be as angry. You know? Well, uh, that's kind of what happens. Gary Hagen, who's head of International Justice Mission, or IJM, uh, they work in countries around the world today, like India and Kenya, to free people from being enslaved. And I once heard him say this. He said, we've seen thousands of slaves set free from external, visible bondage. But we also have to set them free from internal, invisible bondage. When they've been a slave, they've lost the ability, he said, to think about life, to dream about their life, to take responsibility for their life. And so he said, we have to help them recover that fundamental ability. And it takes a minimum of two years in what they call at IJM a freedom school for them to learn how to walk in freedom. Well, friends, that's us. God's people are in that kind of slavery, and so God comes to rescue them in power. And he uses hail and plagues and a whole lot of stuff until the Egyptian overlords finally let his people go. And God's people begin a freedom school in the desert on the way to their own land. Now, in church today, churches are made up of people who have been in various kinds of slaves, slavery, slaves to their own worst impulses at times, or slaves to counterproductive thinking, slaves to their ego. Maybe they just have to be noticed. All these kinds of things that befall us. And maybe slaves to, to being afraid to die. Maybe slaves to a certain emptiness in life. And so God comes in power in Jesus Christ and he rescues us from all that, from that, the power of sin where we can't say no to it and from meaningless death. And now we're enrolled in freedom school. We're trying to unlearn the old ways of thinking and we're trying to learn these new ways that are now possible for us, but we haven't had those before. Well, that's what a church is. One of the reasons why churches are, are difficult for people to fathom is because you've got everything from preschool to postdoc in the freedom school in a church. 
So you have some people who've come a long way to thinking new thoughts and living a new life. And other people are early. And some need to take the grade again. You know, that's just all part of it. And that's the church. So anyway, to continue the story and the parallel, there's this ragtag mob now of like 2 million people still thinking largely in slave think, and they come out of Egypt, and they don't have, they have money, they pick that up, but they don't have chariots, which are the tanks of the day. They don't have armor. They don't have a whole lot of weapons. But here's what they do have. They have the presence of God. This was the main scripture that captured me tonight. It's, it's not from Exodus 32, but from Exodus 13. The Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud. And he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. And this allowed them to travel by day or by night. Now, I've always pictured this pillar as like a Greek pillar that goes vertically like this. And out in front of two million people in some sort of rough, ragged line. Okay? Kind of like standing out in front like the drum major in front of the band. But I was, there's, it's also possible that it was like the pillar laid down on its side, horizontally running over top of the people. Do you get that? So during the daytime, when the desert of Sinai heat is beating down on you, it's like this canopy. It's like you have this moving patio umbrella, like covering you as you walk forward. And it's a little out in front, so you can see where it's moving and you follow it. And then at night in the desert, when the temperature drops way down, it's fire. It's like being on a restaurant patio where they have the heaters, you know? It's like, ah, that feels good. It's really cool. Um, The presence of God is guiding them. And so if the cloud moves, we move. If the cloud stays put, we ain't moving. And that's how it works. And it is this presence of God in cloud and fire that actually protects them. The Egyptians quickly kind of slap their foreheads and say, what did we just do? We let our free workforce leave. Who's going to do all the backbreaking labor in this place? Not us. So, Exodus says, the Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses, chariots, charioteers, troops, And the Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camping. These ex-slaves do not have a chance. They're either going to be dragged back into slavery, or they're going to be killed if they try to resist. But they're not as defenseless as they look. God looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud on the Egyptian army and threw them into a panic. He clogged the wheels of their chariots. They were stuck in the mud. And this ragtag group of ex-slaves in freedom school win because of the presence of God. A guy I know, uh, Roger Thompson, when he was in high school, he worked for the Brinks Armored Company in San Bernardino, California. And his job was to take care of all the coin that Brinks got in there. So they would get in 40 tons of coins coming in from Vegas. And Raj would help wrap them, uh, the quarters and different denominations, 
and then put them into bags. And he told me that one bag of quarters weighs 80 pounds, and it's $1,000 of quarters. Well, one day his boss, Larry, gets a call from Bank of America in downtown San Bernardino, and it was a panic call from the bank. They said, we've got to have coin in the hour. So every one of the armored trucks is out on the roads doing its usual route. So Larry, his boss, backs his own Ford pickup into the bay and says, you know, help me load up. So they load up $25,000 worth of coin, which is a ton. You know, the Ford is now like, down the shocks. And, uh, and Larry says, hey, hop in, we're going up to BOA. So they pull up in front of the bank, and Larry says to, to my friend Raj, he says, uh, you stay here with the money. I'll go, I'll go in and get the dolly, and I'll be right back, and we'll start, I'll start hauling this stuff in. And Roger's thinking, if Brinks ever finds out about this, we are both fired <laughs> immediately. And so he's now standing against this truck with $25,000 in it, in jeans and a T-shirt. He doesn't have a uniform. He has no gun. And he's literally kind of like, how do you look like nothing's going on here and nothing to see? <laughs> he's whistling. And he's thinking the whole time, if people only knew what was in the back of this truck. Friends, God's people are like that truck. We're not that special or amazing in ourselves, in and of ourselves. We're just people who struggle with life, who sometimes are still in slave thinking. But together we have this amazing treasure inside all of us. It's the presence of God. And that's the difference. When I, I went to that campus life group in high school, I just I couldn't figure them out. But finally I did. The, the leader would talk about, you know, Jesus can actually be with you every day. Like, you can live for him. He loves you. He can forgive you. And I found myself drawn to that. I didn't know that. And I, I actually, in one meeting, I started to tear up a little bit, and I was like, I got to stop. I got to stop coming to these meetings because I'm going to break down crying one night, and I can't do that in front of kids from my school. Well, I, I decided I would keep going back despite that and try to keep things under control, but I could not make a commitment to God because I knew just super well if I go on this God thing, my friends are not coming with me. I knew them. I knew that that was not going to be happening for them. And that was tough. Um, but one night, I was walking by a guy. I'm not kidding. It was a Christian in a conversation, but I had nothing to do with the conversation. I'm walking by, and right then, the man happens to say these words. When you become a Christian, you don't have to give up all your friends, but some of them will drift away when you find out what a true friend is. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, 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 have, I have to do this now. And I counted the cost and I followed God. And sure enough, those friends didn't come with me. 
but I had the treasure in the truck. And that started me on 50 years ago to be here tonight. Friends, the most important thing about our church or any church is the presence of God. That's it. As my friend Dennis Baker used to joke around, he'd say, even a religious meeting gets interesting when God shows up. (laughs) It is God who moves among us when we're together for worship. Like, he so often will speak through the scriptures. Have you been here sometime when the scriptures were being read and or the sermon was being preached or a prayer was being said and all of a sudden you were like, oh my gosh, that's God. God is speaking to me. I needed that right now. I needed that this week. I needed that word. That's the presence of God. You can't make that happen. It's God who moves among us when someone's sick and needs a meal and somebody brings them one or sends them a DoorDash card. It's God who moves among us. Uh, I, I wish you could sometimes just hear the thanks that I get from the folks at World Relief and Outreach and People's Resource. Uh, just saying thank you. Thank you for making us a part of your regular giving because it helps us care for teen moms or asylum seekers or whatever. So what do we do with this amazing fact that what really matters is the presence of God? Well, I I thought of two words of encouragement. And uh, here's my first one. Just feel relief. Feel relief. It's such a relief knowing, you know what, we're limited. But God's with us, and God's not limited. It's such a relief to know we're ordinary folks. But God is extraordinary, and he loves working in ordinary folks. You know, as early as the second century, one of the main beefs that Roman elites had with the church was, you guys, we don't don't like your people because you have so many slaves in your gatherings. Who wants to hang out with them? You have so many poor people. I mean, come on. You have so many women. You have so many people who aren't even Roman. They're different colors and they speak different languages. Who would want to go to... That was a stumbling block for them. And today there's still people who are like, you don't have celebrities. You don't have a lot of brainiacs. You don't have a lot of cultural influencers. People aren't going to church to pad their resumes. For many people, church is seen as like a crutch for people down on their like. A luck. Well, friends, let me tell you something. That's not a bug. That's a feature. The Apostle Paul says to a group of early Christians, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious, he says, that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses And he chose those nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. Why does God do it like that? Why why when God, you know, is is the coach with the draft, he drafts people from the last round, the wash-ups, and the walk-ons. Why does he do it that way? I'll tell you why. So when we win, and we win with God, it's very obvious to everybody, it's not us players. It's the coach. Oh, so what sets us apart if we're a church worth the name? 
is, is what Moses tells God in tonight's reading from Exodus. Your presence among us sets your people and me apart from everybody else. All right. Now, my second word of encouragement is feel chosen. Moses once says to the people, the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. He said, actually, you were the smallest of all nations. He says, rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. You are here in this room tonight because of the sovereign choice of God. This church is here because of the sovereign work of God and the obedience of so many of you here, especially uh, the Richardsons. And then Jesus comes, speaking only what the Father gives him to say, and he says to his followers this, you did not choose me. I chose you. Every one of us is chosen, elected out of slavery and brought into freedom school to share in the presence of God together. Paul speaks for God when he says to a group of early Christians, we know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. And so now, based on their words, I, I want to say, Church of the Savior, God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. God's presence will go with you, and God will give you rest. Amen. Now, uh, that's the word of encouragement I had. Um, and now a little postscript. In preparation for this message, I went back through my prayer journal, and I pulled out a couple scriptures that have especially spoken to me in recent months that I put there because I thought they helped me pray for all of you. And I thought in a way they were promises that I took to heart. And uh, this is extra credit. You can consider them and pray as you will. Um, the first one, uh, which came to me in July, is from Nehemiah 9. You sent your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not stop giving them manna from heaven or water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. What a beautiful promise. And the second scripture came earlier this month. It's Zechariah 12.10, where God says, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer. It's such an interesting phrase. It just stopped me. I'm still pondering exactly what that means. I will pour out on you a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. Let's just take a moment, let those words soak in, and you can have a conversation with the Lord in your heart about anything from this message.